After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if we've learned anything, guys, it's that there's always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, what's the catch? But after talking to them, it all made sense. There isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly on to you. I haven't skipped a beat using Mint Mobile services. I have a great service even when I'm traveling for over less than 70% of what I was paying before. Listen to Uncle Chael and say bye-bye to your overpriced wireless plans, jaw-dropping monthly bills and unexpected overages. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans starting at 15 bucks a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash chael. That's mintmobile.com slash chael. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash chael. $45 upfront payment required. That's equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacova's is your first stop for the best in Western style. And by the way, you don't have to be into the Western look to grab a good-looking pair of boots. I recently got a pair of ostrich skin round-tip boots, and I'm warm with my suit. These boots are so versatile that I can throw them on with a full head-to-toe suit. And Anthony Smith came right up to me and he's asking me where I got them. Well, I told him the only place to get them, Tacovas. And they have a seasonal limited edition offering. It's right now, this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, accessory, and more. My wife just surprised me with the ostrich wallet and a belt for my birthday, in case you've seen me. I feel like I look pretty sharp in it. I truly do. And Tacova's has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, their direct-to-consumer pricing keeps value on your feet and money in your pocket. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary beverage or two, and shop for new styles. The smell of fresh leather and a friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience quite like it. If you can't make it into the store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and they ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your favorite pair of boots today. What's happening, guys? Happy Friday! 
and thank you for joining another special episode of your welcome you know a lot has happened since i spoke to you guys on tuesday and coming up on today's show we're going to get to all of it i'm going to tell you what islam makhlchev says his game plan against charles Oliveira is plus we're going to discuss an exciting fight that just got announced and since i haven't talked about him in a while i'll give you my latest thoughts on the future of john jones all of that later but before we get to that, let's do a deep dive into UFC 280. What more could you possibly want from Volkanovski? I am beyond impressed with this guy. Truly, I am beyond impressed. And I have a role. I have a role to do, which is simply to make sure that I bring to the masses the Volkanovski score accurately, which is already being mistold. In all fairness, it is. You go look at Volkanovski's last fight with Max. He never should have been in there. He never should have accepted that fight. Max Holloway, without a doubt or an argument, absolutely proven fact through competition, was Volkanovski's biggest threat. Max was also younger. Max also had more to gain, and Volk took the fight on short notice. I think you guys forget that. I've never seen that in a headline. I feel as though you forgot that. Possibly never knew. Right? The fights come at you and you read the names and sometimes you don't know what's going on. That was put on on International Fight Week where Diaz and Chemayev was slated in for that spot, the co-main event. When Diaz and Chemayev did not come to fruition, there was even talk of Conor McGregor versus Diaz. I remember there was a couple of things that were looked at when that didn't come to fruition. An afterthought was, let's go grab a big world title fight. Let's grab these guys. Oh, by the way, Volk had just got out of the ring with the zombie. Now he's going in against his biggest nemesis. The one and only guy that could even captivate your imagination that can beat him. A guy in Max who I thought did beat him. In all fairness, when they did their rematch on Fight Island, I thought it was 3-2 to two Max. That's how I had it. Folks not only beat the guy, Volk beat the guy twice. He never had to do that third fight. He could have put his foot down. Now let that go. That's not within Volk's makeup, but he could have. Now let that go. Not only does he agree to the opportunity, he takes it on short notice and puts the strap up. That is awesome. He then goes out against the younger fighter and he beats him not only worse, meaningfully worse. It was an absolute surprise, and it reversed a lot of things that we know about the sport. If a younger fighter beats an older fighter and the rematch, the younger fighter will beat him a gun only easier. If a younger fighter knocks out an older fighter and they rematch, the younger fighter will knock him out again only quicker. Go back over history, take that lesson I just gave you, and find an example where it didn't happen. This is not a good idea for Volk. He did it and arguably put on his absolute best performance. I feel just right there that history's already gotten away and we're not giving him his due. Well, some people did pay attention. And in the rankings committee, they moved him to GOAT. Now, GOAT stands for greatest of all time. We mean for it pound for pound right now. But to do that, that moved Volk in front of Usman. Generally speaking, when you have your order picked for the pound for pound, if a guy doesn't lose, no matter how good a guy below him looked, he cannot leapfrog him. 
generally speaking, Volk looks so good and had such appreciation with Kamara Usman not losing, they moved him in front. I mean, this is massive. Th that is looked at by your peers. There's compliments you get from your family, from your coaches, from your team, from your supporters, from your base. To be recognized by your peers as the best. It's a very different compliment. Now Volk is going to go and be a backup fighter in Fight Island. Now this came out of it kind of yin and yang just a little bit. I'm assuming that you're up to speed because Benny DeRouche thought he was going to be the fill-in fighter. Benny even went to the media and said, I think maybe Volk is playing games. Volk came out, he clarified it. He said, I'm not playing games. I'm on weight. I'm licensed. I'm flying out there. My corner's flying in. I'm getting paid to get on the scale. I hope that I get in the ring. What more could you want? What more bravery could possibly be shown? This isn't a joke. This is a bluff that might get called. And if it gets called, it is likely going to be within 24 hours of showtime. If this bluff gets called, it most likely is going to be because somebody failed on the scale which is Friday, the fight's on Saturday. Two extremely opposing styles at a weight class he has never gone in, completely undefeated, sitting world champion, current pound-for-pound pound number one, he will put it all on the line against one of two men, and you don't have to give him camp. You don't have to give him preparation. You don't have to give him a negotiation. Just put him in. What more do you want? We don't have guys like this. We have guys that pretend to be like this. This sport is full of fake tough guys more than any other sport that I know. LeBron James and Tom Brady will step on the field or the court every single week. And they don't need to know who's stepping out there against them. They don't need to know who their line is, who their center is, who their guard is. They don't need to know any of these things. They are going to step out there and they are going to play and they're going to live with the result. And we can't get that in MMA. We have a few guys that even pretend. Most guys are comfortable because you fans have let them off the hook. You fans have let guys get away with, I'm not going to go out and do it. I don't know where that came from. That's not the way it used to be, but that's the way it is now. Oh, his rib hurt. Oh, his shoulder hurt. I mean, whatever it is, you eat it up and you let him slide. But now we have a guy who's really doing it. This isn't a joke. He might get put in. And what do you do in that situation? I mean, that's a tough one, too. Volt came out and he made a statement. He said, if one of these guys misses weight, we must preserve the idea that the world championship is on the line, and that's where I would go in. Is he right? Is he right? Because what if you didn't? What if this is what we've all been told, but Dana looks at it and he goes, you know what? i got to give my audience as close to what I told my audience as I would give them. Charles has missed weight by a pound. This won't be for the world title, but I can still put Charles and Islam in there. I can't do the title thing, but I can keep my card intact. I can have them fight, and I'm probably never going to book this fight again. This is probably it. Tomorrow night and we're all here, and then I can put Volk, who's done what he did, against the winner. I can make everything happen. Dana's going to have to look at that. 
I don't know what he would want to preserve more. I suppose what happens at the scale? Why was the miss? How bad was the miss? I think these things will all be played in. What happens the week of? How does the press go? How does the media? Having Volk versus Islam is amazing. Having Volk versus Oliveira is amazing. Having Islam versus Charles is pretty damn good, and that's what we've all been looking forward to, particularly when Volk's sitting here and can just go take on the winner. But if Volk was to go take on the winner, whoever missed weight, whoever the skunk at the garden party was, isn't likely to get back on track and then you remake that fight. Dana might be confronted with an opportunity of if I want to get this round robin and this is the way I want to do business, I got to just put these boys in here to hell with the belt. He might. I feel as though Dana was confronted with something like that kind of similar at Charles' last fight. He goes to Arizona. He promised the crowd it's going to be Gaethje versus Oliver. He could have moved it. He could have shuffled the deck. He could have pushed Oliver to the side. He put a Gaethje against somebody else. He could have moved his co-main to his main event, which a lot of people were predicting he was going to do. Or Dana could look at it and go, no, I have a problem. Who the champion is is my problem. But I told my audience, I'm going to bring in this card. I have the pieces. The commission will sanction it. I'm going to bring the audiences close to what I promised to deliver. I mean, in all fairness, you're going to have to look at the situation in that moment. I am not fully convinced if one guy misses weight that Volt goes in. I'm not fully convinced of that. I know that's the plan. But it's a really interesting spot. And I don't even know which one I'm cheering for. Like the idea of getting Volk against Islam... I mean, that is so wildly fascinating. People are saying that Islam will kick Volk's ass. Go ahead. Go ahead and kick Volk's ass. You'll be showing me something I've never seen. I've never seen anybody beat up Volkanovsky. And how's he going to do it? He's going to outstrike him. I've never seen anybody outstrike Volkanovsky. Is he going to take Volk down? I've never seen anybody hold, hold Volk down. I've somebody ground and pound it past Volk and start putting Volk in submissions. I've never seen any one of those things. So you're telling me that Islam can do it. You've got my money. You've got my time. And you have my interest. I would then like to know how we have a guy ranked pound for pound in front of another guy that's not even on the list and can't compete with him. I'd like to know all of these. Let's just get it all sorted out. And the odds makers do. They have it just that way. They have Islam as a heavy favorite over Volk. However, they have Volk and Charles very close, and a couple of books even put Volk as the favorite. That's interesting. It's really interesting. And if Volk does go and do this, how do we tell him after the fact, you're not the number one contender and you don't get to compete in this weight class? I mean, now we're being rude. Yes, Volk, you get to be the number one contender. And yes, Volk, you get to fight at this weight class if I need you. If it all works out for me, I'll give you the opportunity. Man, they don't work that way. Nobody's going to tell Volk no. Nobody's booking Volk versus... Emmett or Uriah, those guys aren't even calling for the fight. I mean, I feel like right, there's going to have to be a decision to be made here. That's going to be made by Volkanovsky, I believe. When 280 is done, whether he participates or not, does he wait? Does he go and compete with the winner or does he go back down? And now you start to figure out whether it's going to be Emmett or Rodriguez. Neither of which have done anything to build a fight with Volk. And I mean nothing. Zero. They haven't even tried to step in front of one another. Like, your rear's not saying, I should get it over Emmett. And Emmett's saying, well, I should get it over your rear. Like, they, they've done nothing to build a fight. So I was to predict for you, or at least if it's what Volk wants to do, I think he's the number one contender. I do think that's what it means. I think whoever wins this fight would be very wise to call Volk out. Get this business going, get this show on the road, and let's find out who the absolute best is. It's an interesting spot.
but I'm not going to go as far as to tell you. While Volca's going to be there, while Volca's going to weigh in, I'm not going to go as far as to tell you if somebody misses weight, we're guaranteed Volk steps in. I don't know. I don't know that I buy that. And I think it will have a lot to do with the specific situation. Who it is, why did they miss, how much did they miss by? I think all of those things are going to be considered before we put the backup in. 280 is around the corner. We're going to get our answer. We're going to get it very soon. Once upon a time, I got to fight John Jones. Now, please hear my words, because that's how I felt. I've got to fight John Jones. Not I want to fight John, and not I get to fight John. I got to fight John Jones. Here's the order. Here's the way it goes. Now, I had never competed within that weight class, and there was a lot of guys that did some pretty heavy lifting, and boy, they spoke out, and some of them were my very close friends. Very close friends saying, Chael doesn't deserve this opportunity. They were upset. They even did this publicly. To hell with our personal relationship. It was so wrong that Chael's going to fight John Jones. It's so wrong that I must speak out about it. I remember as those people were all saying it. I remember thinking, guys, you're upset with me. You're upset with me for having an opportunity that many other men were offered and all said no to. You're upset with me for willing to step forward, but all the same, this was not I get to fight John. This is not I am going to fight John. This is I got to fight John. I'm going to beat him. I'm going to beat him, and here's my case. I'm 36 years old. He's a 23-year-old kid. I've never lost at 205 pounds. I was the king of 185. Anderson Silva's ranked in front of John Jones, and I whipped Anderson Silva for six out of six rounds. Two of them were 10 eights. This kid wrestled, I wrestled better. This kid can box, I box longer. I'm laying out my case. Go and do an interview. And it was not long before that fight. Now, I had succeeded wildly with the media in captivating the idea that I was the guy. And John helped with that. John helped with that because he said he had problems with southpaws, and at one point he turned me down. So it's working, right? This is working and we're getting closer. Week before the fight, UFC's on Fox. I do a live interview. And during the interview, right, I'm going to beat this kid. I'm going to stop this kid. He's never going to take me. I'm going to do all these different things to him. Was the build to this fight. And in this interview on live television, I said, he's very good. I might go down. But if I go, I'll go like a gangster and I'll be firing the entire time. That was my line. I get into the back, Steve Becker meets me. Steve Becker was the producer for Fox. He said, this is the first interview you've done about this fight that I didn't like. I said, what? Generally, I get in the back and Becker tells me what a genius I am. Tells me how much he enjoyed it. What a high spot of the show. I look forward to that interaction because he's always patting me on the back. He said, it's the only one you've done I didn't like. I said, why? I mean, I covered the who, what, when, why, where. I worked in the gangster ang angle. I got a semi-auto, I'm firing. I mean, right, this is a hot, fiery thing. I'm face-to-face -face with John. I said, he said, because it's the first time ever you've implied you might not beat him. You said, I might go down. It is the first time you 
who has been selling confidence, looked unsure. And I took that with me. I remember that. 2012. Charles Oliveira came out this morning and said, I'm going to shock the world. I'm going to beat Islam Makhlchev. And now I understand what Steve Becker was trying to say to me a decade ago. Charles Oliveira has claimed and convinced many that he's still the champion of the world, that he's going to be defending a belt, that Islam doesn't even deserve this opportunity. Not only can Islam not beat him, Islam shouldn't even be in there with him. Charles has said Islam does his best work on top. I will start in that position and I will beat this guy easily. I will knock him out if we stay on the feet and I will outdo him on the ground if he can even get me there. And now he came out and said it will shock the world if he wins. When this fight was announced, DraftKings had it a 3-1 to one spread for Islam. I covered this and followed it very closely. And at one point, and it only stayed there for about a half an it was 11, 12 hours. It went the other way where Islam was a 3.5-to-1 favorite. They're damn near even money right now. Negative 140 to plus 170. That is, that's damn near, for colloquial terms, even money. But that is a wild change in the spread. That is millions and millions of dollars. Came in on Charles. Now, Charles isn't any better today than when that fight was announced, at least not that we've seen. Islam has not changed, for better or worse, since this fight was announced, at least not that we've seen. Neither has fought. No new information is coming in. It has all been done by words in the media, and Charles convinced millions upon millions of dollars around the globe that he's the guy, and today he came out and said it would shock the world if he were to win. What does that mean? What does it mean? Because there's two ways to look at it. Before you think that Charles just conceded something, which is how that's going to be read a little bit, where Charles is conceding that he's the rightful underdog. Well, he's conceding that Islam with a beautiful record and 16-1 and one and the one was years ago and all this different stuff and he doesn't even belong there. They shouldn't be on Fight Island and the judges are already corrupt so we get to that point. Is now saying, yeah, it would be a surprise. It would surprise the world. I'm not supposed to do this. However, he's already convinced the world, which is why the odds went from three and a half at one point to damn near even money. Who is it he's going to surprise? Does he plan to surprise the world? Because they have put millions on him. They've put millions on him against the house and told DraftKings, you did a bad line. You have a bad line, which is why you opened it three to one, and now it's negative 140 to plus 170. It seems as though the world's already been convinced. So what's Charles talking about? Does he really mean that he is going to shock the world? Or did he just disclose he's going to shock himself? Now, while you hear that and think that that would be a negative, I have to tell you, sports announcers will always talk about who has the pressure. But they never explain to the audience why that matters. 
Now, that's not because they think the audience knows. It's because the sports announcers don't know. They've just heard the word. That's why most of your, your big announcers don't have any rings or medals. Most of them never did the game. They don't even know the game. They can just sit there in a nice suit and look as though they have a confidence within the game. They don't take the time to explain to you, the audience, why pressure matters, because they don't know. Pressure matters for one reason. Whoever feels it has a chemical release that creates a fatigue. If you care less than your opponent, you will reach exhaustion at a slower rate. Scientifically and chemically speaking. So why Charles Oliveira might have just showed us a different side of his hand. He might have. He might have also alleviated some pressure from himself. He might enjoy going into a fight as acclaimed in his spirits and as decorated he is as an underdog. He might enjoy going to Fight Island where he believes it's already up against him. That can be interpreted as a negative in a preconceived notion. It can also alleviate pressure. I don't know. I'm just bringing this to you because the comment jumped off the page. And I did have to reflect back to my Steve Becker moment when I made the comment about John Jones. This is the first time that Oliveira has revealed or made a statement of any kind that this was going to be anything but a foregone conclusion. I'm just asking you. I'm bringing you the quote, but now I want to ask you, what do you think of that? What do you make of it? And not only how will it affect the fight, moreover, how will it affect his approach to the fight? Islam led us into a little bit of his game plan. A little bit of strategy, potentially, as he goes into Charles. And all he said, he said, I'm going to knock him down. His last three opponents have all knocked him down. I'm going to knock him down, too. The difference is those opponents didn't follow him down to the ground. Now, I like that observation by Islam. It was a very weird thing when somebody didn't follow him to the ground. They should have followed Charles to the ground, all three of them. But all three opponents had some level of respect to the ground game of Charles. Now, I don't want to take away from that. I'm just sharing with you. My eyes have never shown me that. I continue to bang the same drum of telling you no matter how dangerous a guy is with submissions, he's not from his back. That is a myth. That is a myth that you believe that you've seen. Don't let Charles on your back. Do not let Charles get on top of you. Do not let Charles inside control. All of those things are true. Charles on his back is the least dangerous form of Charles that we've got. And this used to be a thing, like right when people were figuring this sport out, you'd get a guy down and you break and you'd stand, you'd tell him to get back up to his feet and the announcers would go crazy. Oh my God, he's so smart. He's not falling him to the ground. Now, this was a real thing in 1999. This existed to some degree in 2003. We saw George St. Pierre, the best fighter this sport has ever seen, show somebody that respect and I can't recall who it was, where he called him back up to his feet. And everybody thought, what a great strategy the coaches have put together. It's very rare that we see that. It was a very weird thing that people would hurt Charles and not follow him to the ground. Like, that. that's a very, very strange thing. And it did happen three times in a row. Islam is correct about that. And Islam won't make that mistake. He's telling the truth there as well. But I just think it opens a broader discussion. 
if Islam's only point was to say, I'm not afraid to fall into the ground, if that was the real message, okay, I believe that and I accept that to be true. If he truly meant it all very little, that I'm going to knock him down and then I'm going to follow him to the ground, maybe that's really letting us in on his strategy. Why would Islam be on his feet with Charles in the first place? He's not going out there to just show the world I can do this. He's had 16 other fights in the UFC. He's never attempted to want to show that a single time. So why would he be on his feet? Why would he be trading with Charles to knock him down in the first place? Does Islam not believe that he could take Charles down at will? Does he not believe I can crowd this guy, I can get him to the fence, and I can drag him down at will? I'm going to have to trade and mix it up with him. That may very well be true, but I would just personally be interested if that's what he thinks. Because the fighters usually know. I don't know who the alpha is between those two. I think that's an interesting fight. And you, you will never know. But I assure you, between Charles and Islam, they already know who's going to win that fight. You'll see five fights a year where the two guys that go in there both truly believe that they're going to win. Five a year at most. I'm probably stretching that. Maybe 10 in a lifetime where both guys truly believe I'm going to win this fight. One of them knows. And it doesn't seem to be the case here. And if Islam is studying Charles, he's looking at his wrestling, he's looking at his defensive abilities, and he's realizing, I can't just go take this guy down. I can't just go throw this guy down. I can't just crowd him. I can't just cut off the cage. I can't just push him into the fence. All of the things that Islam has done until now, I think he's really tipping his hat to Charles Oliveira. And I've seen a little bit of that myself. When Oliveira fought Tony Ferguson, I did not know until that night how good Oliveira was at wrestling. I knew about the jiu-jitsu and the knee bars and the submissions. I knew he's kind of got the long hands. I, I felt like I had a pretty good understanding for Oliveira. I respected and appreciated him. But I didn't know that. He went for four takedowns against Tony Ferguson over 15 minutes. He got all four. And they were all the same where he crowded him, went into a double, lifted him up off the ground. I mean, everything was right. Hip and head position is very important. It will take you years to develop that. That's not something that come along in a training camp, just by example. So Oliver had spent these years. He had very good wrestling. I didn't know that. So I watched that fight with Tony Ferguson. Man, Oliver is better at wrestling than I knew that he was. He goes into that fight with Justin Gage. He turned, okay, he's got better hands than I knew that he was. If you go back and you watch that check hook that he caught Chandler with and put him down, I mean, again, it takes years of boxing. It takes years in the room. It takes years on the focus. But there's so many things that go in to turning that over, getting your elbow up, knowing what your range was. The poor guy doesn't see very well. Well, he's got incredible range, whether he's seeing triple out there or not. Where you've got to be with weight management, where you are with your feet, so many different things come in to rolling backwards and catching a target with enough power to put him down. But it's time and time again, Oliveira keeps showing me. I'm just personalizing. I'm just speaking for me. But Charles keeps showing me he's better than I knew that he was. I keep seeing that in him. And he's a human being after all, so he's going to have some deficits. Like, by example, if a half a pound costs him millions of dollars in a world championship 24 hours before he's going to go in a fight, that's going to be a problem, right? Because it would be for anybody. So of course it will be for him, no matter how good he is at the, his single best performance 
was just that. His single best performance I've seen, the single scariest version of Charles I've ever seen was Charles versus Gaethje. Where there was no championship, there was no contractual participation, there was no of-the-night bonuses. They all got taken away from him the day before at the scale. He went out and fought just fine. Okay, he showed us yet again. He can deal with these things. Because Charles made a little bit of a stink about the fact that it's going to be Islam, who he doesn't believe should be the rightful number one contender, and the fact that it's going to be on Fight Island, which he is perceiving as Islam's backyard. Thus, it's going to taint the judges. He's talked about this openly. But before you think that that's going to detour him, or before you think that he's not mentally tough to go and deal with it, you got to understand the things that he's already dealt with. Not loving a potential decision by three judges who are yet to be named in a location that you think your opponent's familiar with, that's nothing compared to going to Arizona, where Gaethje's from, than having that commission take a belt off of you. And I'm just wondering what Islam is seeing. Why is Islam going to knock him down? Why is Islam going to trade with him? Is he trying to give a different message? I'm just as good on my feet as anybody. You just haven't seen it yet. Is he doing that? Or is he truly proclaiming for us, I'm going to be stuck on my feet with this guy. I'm going to have to trade the punches and the kicks with him. Because that would be a major tip of the hat. That would be a major compliment that Islam, even on accident, is giving to Charles. So that's all the different angles of UFC 280 for the main event. And now I want to transition to one of the most highly anticipated non-main events in recent memory, Sugar Sean versus Peter Yan. Guys, what does a win look like in that fight? I feel like these are vastly different fronts that both guys are fighting on. And by example, I don't see a scenario where Peter Yan becomes a number one contender, gets to fight for a championship if Aljo remains champion. A lot of ifs on that, but I don't think that they're, I think they're going to see some parody. At the same time, I feel if Sugar Sean wins, Sugar Sean's next fight will be for a world championship regardless of who's holding that belt. Now, I didn't just say anything ground, groundbreaking for you. I wasn't attempting to. I'm just talking about your approach to a fight is very relevant. So us, the viewer, we'll try to decide who's got more pressure on them. We'll try to, who's got the experience, right? We'll look for lots of different things, but we'll also use motivation as a key. If one guy can have all of his dreams come true if this one just goes right, versus another guy has just got to make sure that he gets a win so that he can move on and maybe have an opportunity to make all of his dreams come true. I mean, I think that we would at least guess that the motivation would be different. We could also assume with that motivation comes a different level of pressure. So I don't know if, if we're all going to come to the conclusion that this is better for Sugar Sean. I'm just sharing with you as we talk about it. And I want to go a little bit further. What is a win for Sean? Sean O'Malley is a big star in the weight class. He's a big star in the sport. He has beautiful placement on cards. Placement on cards is far more important than a ranking. And Sean has those things, but he said that he doesn't deserve them. This has been a narrative. Sean doesn't fight anybody. Sean doesn't fight the best guys. Now, his last opponent with the eye poke was one hell of a tough guy. And, of course, Cheeto Vera has gone on since and is now ranked number three in the world. But this was still the story around Sean. Well, the buck stops when you take on a former world champion. But you do not have to live up to that to some degree 
If the former world champion walks over you, then the narrative that you didn't earn your spot and you had an easy way here is going to live on. But I am asking you, what is a win for Sean? I mean, if Sean is just against the narrative about him, then all he has to do is go out there and compete, right? I'm asking. What if Sean wins a round? What if it's a close fight? This is a 29-28, Sean loses, it, it goes to Young, but Sean won a round. If Sean wins a round against the number one great guy who was the world champion one calendar year ago, wouldn't that take a pretty big dent into the discussion that Sean doesn't fight anybody tough and Sean doesn't have the skills? Wouldn't that be true? Now, here's another scenario. Sean's coach, Tim Welsh, came out, and Tim said that Sean has the ability to go right through Peter Young. I believe he used the term manhandle him. But the point is, it's going to be a 15-minute fight. It's going to be 15 minutes of Sean winning. And that really does come down to a very basic concept that you will always hear fight guys talking about, which has to do with range. Right, you're always going to get a fight guy that knows something about fighting. He's always going to throw out a few buzzwords. Range is going to be one of them. Reach is going to be one of them. Get inside and he's going to say something about footwork. He doesn't have the foggiest idea what any of them mean. And he can't give you an example of anybody that's ever done it, but they're going to talk about it. This will be my first time ever that I've used the word range. Because I haven't have to because I'm not lazy. At any rate, I'm going to use it here. Because Yon had a hard time with long, long range. And I'm just giving the example of Sandhagen. Sandhagen round one was very hard for Yon. Sanhagen came at the end of the punches. Jan wasn't able to get inside. But I left with a massive respect for Jan because even though he took those bombs, he weathered the storm, he figured it out on the fly, and he did get inside. Sean O'Malley is one of the few guys that has a reach advantage but knows how to use it. And to Tim's point, if Sean is to come out and start finding Jan early on, he just has to repeat that. If, if he comes out, Sugar Sean, and he wins the first 30 seconds, it's not a matter if he has to win the next 14 minutes and 30 seconds. It's a matter that he has to duplicate those 30 seconds over and over again. And it would be very interesting if Sean did control him. It's not as though there's going to have to be some masterful game plan. Keep him outside, touch him. When he gets inside, move, don't let him touch you. Very easy for me to say, very hard to do. But I thought that Tim brought up a very good point. Tim is one of the great minds in the sport. I've been friends with Tim for a meaningful period of time, but I was training partners with Tim. Tim and these guys, they, they, they used to jump in a car and they would just drive around the country. they drive and they come to this gym and spend a week and they come up here and spend a week and Team Quest was always one of the places they would stop off at. But he had an incredible mind. Like we would get, <clears throat> we'd get done with practice and everybody's headed to the locker room and we would stop, Tim, whoa, Tim, come back here. Earlier, you were doing this, show us. He was a guy that, that was going town to town to try to get information, but he had it. He was already more advanced than we were. He understood the sport different. He had different setups. He had different techniques. So he came in to be the student, but he would leave as the teacher. I was so glad when he finally settled down and started his own gym. But he's a real mastermind of the sport. And if he's saying that Sean can keep Peter Yan at the end of his shots, that he can stay on his feet, that he can outcondition him, that he's not going to get frustrated. I mean, it's somebody that I'm going to listen to. And I don't know if it's as complicated as that. I don't know that Sean has to win the fight. It's always good to win fights. I'm just sharing for you to capture people's attention, to look the impressive, 
to earn your spot on the main card, to stop the idea that this guy hasn't gone in there with anybody tough. I'm not sure Sean has to get his hand raised. His coach is talking about him dominating the fight. And it's interesting to me. I mean, that is a match. 2022 is unlike any year that we have ever seen. If 2022 Dana White got a meeting with 2007 Dana White, 2007 Dana White kicks 2022 Dana out of the office. He's not going to agree with him. 2010 Dana, 2015 Dana, 2022 Dana is not going to agree with 2022 at all. But something extremely fascinating is happening. And when this year is done, we're going to have to ask ourselves one really big question. Who came the furthest? I'll give you an example. For last year, so 2021, no two fighters skyrocketed their name and their appeal and their placement and the way that the fans were talking about them, like Blahal Muhammad and Sean Strickland. The previous year, you didn't know what a Blahal was and you didn't know who Sean Strickland was. But those two, they go to main events. This year is very interesting. I mean, do you, does Hazmat Chemayev have that all locked up? Because he did. It was all Chemayev. Every headline was Chemayev. Anytime I wanted to do a piece and I wanted you guys to listen, all I had to do was put Chemayev, put his name in the thumbnail. True. Very true story. Chemayev is still red hot. But what happens if Sugar Sean wins? And moreover, what happens if Gamrot wins? I mean, Gamrot's another one of these guys that I just keep hearing about. I can't turn around without hearing this name. What about Bo Nickel? Just for example. I mean, this year really is unlike any other year. I could even throw Tai Tuivasa in there to some degree. Tai was pretty over last year as well. But to some degree, but these are names that you never thought that you would hear. I mean, I had to throw Bo Nickel on that list. Bo Nickel has not ever fought within the UFC. But there's massive opportunity being formed right now. And guys are grabbing it and guys are running with it. What are they going to do? What character, what gimmick, what skills, what placement, what headlines, what social media, what are they going to do? Vince McMahon is very well known for telling his guys and only promising them one thing. I'm only going to give you one thing ever. It's not going to be money. It's not going to be a time. I'm going to give you one thing. I'm going to give you an opportunity. Whatever you do with that, we're going to live with the results and juxtapose that against the other guys they give an opportunity to. And the top 10 guys are going to move on to WrestleMania. It's pretty straightforward. And even though those words have never been spoken in MMA... It's the exact same scenario. And who is going to make the most of it? 2022 is unlike any other year. And as it starts winding down, one of the many questions that we are going to ask ourselves is who was the rising star? We've still got a few fights to go. I mean, you want to talk about rising stars and you think maybe I just identified them and you're going to start comparing those. What if Piera beats Adesanya? Pierre might come in on a six and shut the book on this whole conversation. 2022 really has been a lot of fun. What's more important, guys, your popularity or your ranking? 
I want to hear it from you. Now, I don't want you to just tell me from a fan perspective. I want you to follow the golden rule of life, which is you put yourself in somebody else's shoes. How would you want to be treated? So right now, you're in the Ultimate Fighting Championship. You can be wildly popular compared to the field, or you can be ranked higher than the field. Which one do you want? And I'll leave that to you as a personal question. This sport is very much pass-fail. I was ranked number two in the world simultaneously by Sports Illustrated and ESPN for three straight years. That had never been done. I've also never mentioned it to you. And if I was not attempting to prove a point right now, I still would not be mentioning it to you. I do not have those press clippings. I could not tell you the year. I don't have that cut out and on my wall. I will never share that with my grandchildren. It should be something that I, I should be proud about that. Number two in the world for three straight years by the two major publications, but it's just not how our sport works, right? If it was the Olympic Games, you come in top three. If it was the NCAA, you'd come in the top eight. For world championships, it's pass or fail. You were the champion or you weren't. There is no, I was number two when this guy was number four. Did you fight him? Did you beat him? Otherwise, zip it. It's one of those things. So what would you rather be, more popular or higher ranked? Think of the top 10 guys at Patty the Batty's weight. Think of the top 10 guys, of which Patty's not one. You don't know what they make, but you've got a feel for it. Would you rather have their paycheck or would you rather have Patty's? Would you rather have their sponsors and their media opportunity and their recognition or would you rather have Patty's? Now we're seeing this play out right now at 135 pounds. Cheeto Vera is the most dangerous guy. I believe he's ranked number three. I disagree with that. He should be the number one contender. I firmly believe that. He's beaten not one but two world champions. He didn't only stop, he didn't only beat them, he stopped them. Frankie Edgar will be in the Hall of Fame someday. Dominic Cruz will be in the Hall of Fame someday. Generally in this sport, if you beat a former champion, which is hard to do, there's not a lot of them floating around, not to mention they're pretty good. If you beat one, you get a fight for a world championship. He beat a world champion and he got to fight another former world champion. It's, it's one of these things. Cheeto should be the number one contender. I believe he's ranked number three. But who do you think's in a better position? Cheeto Vera or Sean O'Malley with a win over Jan? It appears pretty clear not only to all of us, but also to the guys in the division. If Sean O'Malley defeats Peter Yan, Sean O'Malley will be fighting for the world championship. Dillashaw understands that. Sterling understands that. I believe that Cheeto understands that. So would you rather have the ranking or would you rather have the popularity? Which do you think you can do more with? Which do you think will blow the winds when it comes down to politicking in the war room in your favor? What should Cheeto Vera be doing right now? Cheeto came out last night. He did an interview. I picked it up this morning with my coffee. He weighed in on the fight of Jan and Sugar Sean, but he didn't, he didn't quite make a, a prediction. He was talking about Sean, and he always takes little shots at Sean. Now, good reason for that. 
which is precisely what I'm discussing. Cheeto Vera should be the number one contender, but Sean O'Malley is the one in the number one contenders match. Oh, by the way, Sean O'Malley, prior to the reversal of the Sugar State Athletic Commission, had a win. I apologize, a loss to Cheeto, and it was his only loss. Cheeto has the right to be annoyed. Cheeto has the right that Sean appealed it to the Sugar State Athletic Commission. That in and of itself has a degree of unsportsmanship. Like, I could not fault Cheeto in the least. But what would you do if you're in Cheeto's spot? I had a friend tell me, Cheeto should be picking Sugar Sean. He should be hoping Sugar Sean wins. And my friend's reasoning was, if he does, and then Sean goes to fight for a title and wins the title, boom, here's Vera. Waiting right here. I'm the guy that beat you. Boom, here's Vera's title shot. I don't know that I disagree with that, but I also just ate up a calendar year. For Cheeto Vera or anybody else to beat three guys in that weight class, you beat three guys in a row in that weight class, I realize he already has, but now that's going to be, what, five, six, seven in a row? I mean, it's just hard to do. It's very rare. But you're going to have to beat three more guys in one of the, the, the toughest divisions there are to get a shot at a world title who, in the scenario I just gave you, would be held by a guy Cheeto beat. Or Cheeto steps in front of it right now. Cheers for Sugar Sean. Sugar Sean wins and Cheeto says, yes, I've got my opportunity. Whoa, what do you mean you've got your opportunity? Why just one? I just beat him by proxy. Obviously, they're not going to give the shot to a guy that I beat before they give it to me. Thank you very much. When should I see you and where's my contract? That would be one angle. I don't know that that would hold up. That would be one angle. But I do think it's better for Cheeto... If a guy Cheeto beats, continues to have success, I do think that. The other side of this specific situation we're looking at is I don't believe Jan is going to go into a world title fight if Sterling remains champion. I don't believe that. So it does leave you with what do I do if we eliminate Sugar Sean and Jan isn't even in the running because of the parody, boom, Cheeto comes right in possibility. Things are all possible, but there's a pretty good chance that you got lost in what I just said. I mean, in all fairness, it gets a little bit complex, which is why it's so important to be hammering these stories home. It's why it's so important right now that Cheeto, who really, come on, Cheeto's the number one contender, for goodness sakes. Doesn't mean he's going to get the fight. And I don't love the idea of how the rankings are done. I have always had a resistance to the rankings. Now, I've only had a resistance because I was in the room the day we were told there's going to be rankings. I was hosting a program. It was the number one program in our sport at that time. In fairness, it was the only program on television that covered our sport. It was called USC Tonight. Kenny Florin and I were hosting this. The producers came and told us we're going to do rankings. Now, this was great news. This was exciting. We were going to build a graphic. We we're going to put it on the screen. Then we were going to debate it. It was going to create controversy. The most controversial thing in the world is where people judge other people. It's never fair. It's a talking point. It's great for guys like Kenny and I who have a program. We're talking heads and words must come out of our mouth. It's a great jumping off point. Just the whole reason that it was formed. 
It would also put us in line with other sports. Every sport that is recognized in this world has a ranking system. We needed to do it. I appreciated that, but the corruption that came with that by the fighters, the fighters finding reasons to turn down fights, finding reasons to say no, and hanging their hat on the argument of rankings, to watch people refuse to fight Hazmat Chemayev because he wasn't ranked. He didn't have the experience. Here I am at number four. How dare them bring me this guy that's not even ranked? I mean, just by example. So it always irritated me to some degree. Now, I also think that the fans' opinions should matter. I haven't seen enough times. I've seen it. I haven't seen it enough times to corrupt the pool where the most popular fighters in order aren't also the top and the best fighters in order. I have seen it. We might be seeing it right now. I don't know just how good Sugar Sean is. I mean, that's largely what this is going to be about with this former champion. Just how damn good is Sugar Sean? We're going to get that tested, but in fairness, if you look at the rankings right now and you compare that to Cheeto Vera and we're looking at Sean to be the heir apparent with a victory to go on to fight for the crown... Top 10 rankings. I mean, how do you do this? You say, hey, you know, wow, this guy's record or this finish or this guy fought this guy or here's a common opponent. I mean, right, it's, it's something like this, which has never been explained. It doesn't have a career criteria, which seeds do. In fairness, just so you understand, seeds do. If you're going to any kind of a tournament, all of the head coaches will get it. It doesn't matter if it's football, doesn't matter if it's baseball, basketball, wrestling, what I came from. The coaches will all get in a room and they will lay out their argument and then they will put the seeds in the bracket. You're the one seed, you're the two seed, you're the three seed. So it's their job to bring up, no, wait, we beat this guy over the North Plains. Hey, wait, these two haven't matched up head to head for three years, but when they did, and you start laying out the argument. But there's a clear criteria of what they must go through. There's a clear criteria where head-to-head competition trumps everything else. But when was that competition? But that criteria is still laid out. We don't have that for the rankings. We do not have a clear criteria. If you and I have never fought, but we have a common opponent and you beat him in one minute, and I beat him by a decision, should you then be ranked in front of me? Because if so, then it would have to be the same for every single weight class, which of course is not how this fight goes. You could have had a wonderful night with this guy. You could have been getting beat up for 59 seconds, caught him with an uppercut. You still beat him in one minute. It took me 15. It's not the same thing. And the criteria and the judges and the ranking officials can weigh that. I don't begrudge that. I don't think that they shouldn't. I'm sharing with you, if we're trying to be in line with our sports and we don't have a clear criteria for what they're looking for, why don't we just go by most popular? What would happen if we did? What would happen if in our top 10 list, we just went with who's the most popular? We could base that on actual numbers. We could come up with an algorithm. We could use Google. I mean, there's ways to verify that. And what would happen? Do you think it would change that much? Now, I'm not making a push, and this isn't the hill that I want to die on, and this isn't my suggestion to our community. I'm just having a conversation with you guys. What would happen if we did? Instead of going 1 through 10 on a criteria that does not exist, which is why it's never been exposed to us, or we just went 1 through 10 on the most popular, do you think that you guys would pretty much come to the same conclusion? Go give a look to the rankings. 
You guys know where they are. I make a joke all the time. I don't know where they are. Then somebody always tells me, okay, Chael, how do you not know? It's at usc.com backslash your mama's basement. I mean, it's one of these where I still don't know. So why don't you go over there and take a look at a weight class, tell me who the most popular guys are, and then juxtapose that with the rankings. I think you're going to come pretty close. And you would also have a good feel for the politics of it. How would this guy be number two if seven, eight, and nine all beat him? How did he do that? That would be fascinating. How do the fans still want to see him more? It'd be very interesting. But instead of just having to look at the rankings, knowing there's a political side, we would just have that all packaged up into one. Go do me a favor. Go look at the rankings. See where they're at based on skill, based on a criteria that doesn't exist and has never been exposed to us. And then just juxtapose that with your own opinion on who most popular is. And you tell me which list you think is better. To close out today's show, let's discuss some news of the light heavyweight division. And then I want to return to my roots of speculating on the future of one John Jones. So once upon a time, the greatest light heavyweight fight I have ever personally seen took place. It was Prohaska versus Glover. And Glover had this thing won. All the judges had already turned their cars in. He had the thing won. There was 30 seconds left in a round, of which I thought Glover was winning. But even if he lost the round, mathematically, he still wins the contest. He had, all, he had won three rounds, according to all three of the judges, going in to the fifth. 30 seconds left, he ends up getting submitted. It was just an amazing fight. It was an amazing contest, but it was not booked for an immediate rematch. Moreover and better said, it was not immediately booked for an immediate rematch. Six and a half weeks went by. And we discussed that over here. And we paid it its dues. We call it the greatest fight. And we talked about how great Glover was and with his age and, and all of this. And he was still going to be on top. Mathematically, he was still on top. We talked about Prohaska and the warrior spirit. I mean, we did the whole thing. We did everything right. We did three videos and you guys didn't watch any of them. So on video number three, I came and I told you guys, I said, man, you guys just aren't interested in this fight. It's the greatest light heavyweight fight that I've ever seen, but you have no interest in it. And you've made that very clear, which I suppose adds to the reason that this thing hasn't been rebooked. And I had a fan write in. I had a fan write in and say, Chael, I don't like your deduction. Just because you're making videos on the subject and we don't want to see the videos doesn't mean we won't want to see the fight. Yes, it does. It's exactly what it means. You can hire a data analysis firm. You can do that. You can spend millions of dollars on data, or you can just come to my YouTube page and you will know specifically what the market wants. It 100% translates to that exact thing. And I was a little surprised that a fan would take time out of his day and send me something so stupid. But it happened. Now that fight did get announced and that fight did get made. But that fight was up in the air and the potential possibilities were Anthony Smith. Anthony Smith was going to take on Uncle Liav. Those boys believed that was a number one contender's fight. Uncle Liav won the fight and he won it by stoppage which historically would make Uncle Liav the number one contender, but when they interviewed him after the ring, he was the last one to know that he was even in a number one contender's match, and that hurt. That pulled everything down. You then have Blahovitz, who lost in an upset to Glover, who came back to a main event, who beat and stopped Rachik, 
and looked like he was in a prime position, but he didn't speak up. Blahovich didn't say anything. Then all of a sudden, Blahovich realized, oh my goodness, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. There's an opportunity here. It's not my, I don't know why he thought it was his in the first place, but he did. And many people have made this very mistake. They believe something is there. They get some kind of an entitled factor, so they don't go out and fight for it. So Blahovich started to speak up, and he started to do a very good job. Blahovich is one of these guys that I do find very interesting when you can get, when you can get him to give you something. But out of left field, Uncle Ayev, who's in an argument, Uncle Ayev is part of this argument to be going to fight Prohaska. All of a sudden, Uncle Ayev withdraws himself. But when Ankalaev jumps overboard, he takes Blahovich with him. He called Blahovich out. When everybody's going after Prohaska, and Prohaska spread it around a little bit. Prior to his fight with Glover, he said, hey, winner takes on Blahovich. After his fight with Glover, he said, hey, Glover, you got my respect. Gave me the opportunity. I'll give it right back to you. He was spreading himself around a little bit. So we've got this, this four-horse race. Ankalaev publicly removes himself, right? As soon as Ankalaev calls out Blahovich, he has now removed himself from the opportunity to go and fight for a championship. But as soon as he calls out Blahovich, he took Blahovich down too. He, he jumped overboard, but he grabbed Blahovich and took him with him. That's very interesting. I brought this to you guys 20 minutes after this was done. I happened to be sitting in this very chair when he sent out the tweet removing himself from title contention and saying he wants to fight Blahovich and saying that that should be the number one contenders match. I happen to be sitting here and I came and told you guys, these two are going to fight. They have to fight. I told you Glover is going to get the rematch. Glover did nothing. Glover did nothing interesting himself. But Ankalaev removed himself and took Blahovich with him. They've got to fight. Now that's a big storyline. What I just told you is a massively interesting storyline that played out right in front of you guys. If you're the two viewers that follow along, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But if you're not, now you know why these two have to fight and you know what's on the line. And that's interesting. That's interesting. The lesson here remains the same. Blahovich st stood up for himself. He spoke up. He just did it too late. Ankalaev spoke up for himself. But he did it a little bit too late. Now they have what they believe is a number one contenders match. I don't think any of us disagree, do we? I don't think you could name another light heavyweight fight that's signed. If you could, I don't think you could name a light heavyweight fight that has as high of ranked guys that is signed. I don't think you know of a light heavyweight fight that's out there aside from Ankalaev and Blahovich. So quite possibly they are the number one contenders match, but they haven't told anybody. They haven't said a word. I had to go search to find the fact that this fight was even happening. They're both radio silent. I mean, if you're not going to learn from history, what in the hell is the point of studying it? These two are going to have to go and fight. These two will not be fighting for a world championship. They now believe it's going to be a number one contenders match. I don't think any of us disagree. However, we also don't know of another fight that's even signed in that division. What happens when one does get signed and that guy decides to grab a megaphone? Of course we're going to listen. We have nothing else to listen to. Nobody else is talking. They found themselves in this spot by being uncompelling and uninteresting. That's very rude for me to say, but it's accurate. That's what happened. So they're going to handle the spot that they found themselves in by being uneloquent and uninteresting. 
and you wonder how many times you can circle the drain before you're going to realize the mistake that you made. I believe that fight is of consequence. I believe that fight will be a number one contenders match. That's what I believe. But I haven't heard anybody else make the argument. And I know that the rebooking of Prohaska versus Glover had to do with one person, which was Lionheart. Anthony Smith is the single reason that it took six and a half weeks to rebook that match. Because he spoke up. He said, this is the number one match. I'm the former title challenger, this guy. Uncle Iev is undefeated, number, number nine ranked. This is the match. And people listened and people watched and people waited because of it. It would just seem that at some point you're going to have to realize what we're doing here. I can't make you. I can only encourage you. I look at the situation that John Jones is in. John Jones is in a situation where there is a very big match for him. But only one. What do you do after that one? I just look at that situation. The reason he had to leave 205 pounds, he got bored. People were coming to John Jones' fight, fight after fight after fight, dressed up as empty seats. He looks around and he sees, I got to make a change. I get some new parody. I got to reignite the fans who will then reignite me. I got it. I understood it. I supported it. But in two years, he went and did some pull-ups and drank some protein powder. He hasn't built a single fight for himself. Here we are two years later and 40 pounds bigger is stuck in the same exact situation, which is there's nobody that you want to see fight John Jones. And if you do want to see, you've got, you've got one. And I feel as though John should be controlling the show. I'm now at 240, which makes myself eligible within my own psyche to go and fight at heavyweight, but I haven't decided I'm going to do that. I might be coming back to 205. I would seem to me that there was a game that could be played there. There is a manipulation. You've had two years to do it. Two years. You hire a guy to spot you on a bench press, but you don't put you don't put any of your money towards a creative element. You haven't gone and found guys in Hollywood, guys that write scripts, guys that have written shows. You haven't found comedians that are on stage, stuck around at the Yak Yak Shack, grabbed them afterward, exchanged numbers, said, give me something that's interesting here. Like that never crossed your mind. 10% goes to some guy that gets some paperwork done, but you never thought to add a creative arm. That just surprises me. And you've had two years to do it. Blahovich is going to fight Uncle Ive. I get it that you guys don't care. Believe me. I, I fought my producer, Ryan, on even making this piece. You've made it crystal clear that you don't care. I understand that. But it's still a very hard fight. It's still a very high-ranking fight. Is it a number one contenders match? Not if they don't make it one. A smart man knows what to say. A wise man knows whether or not to say it. So, I could very clearly and simply explain to you what is going on with John Jones and his career? I could do that. I'm smart enough to know it, but I don't do it because I'm wise enough not to say it. Now, we're going to put the shoe back on you. I'm going to just speak to you in code. 
You're going to hear what I say, but if you're going to learn what I'm trying to tell you, then you're going to have to observe what I don't say. I don't know if this will be a fun exercise for you or not. Professional wrestling. WWF. Now you know it is the WWE specifically. Is the model that the UFC mirrored itself after. That's not a secret. That was told to us very directly, specifically by Lorenzo Fertitta. You may not know what to do with that because you may not have studied the model and the history of the WWE. You may just be a fan that tunes in and you want to be entertained right there in that moment. I fully understand that. I personally find an interest on the business side of it. Not just what happened, why did this happen, and how did it turn out to be either a flop, a massive attraction, or somewhere in between. That interests me. How much did the UFC mimic itself and mirror the practices of the WWE? That was never established. That was never made clear. Now, that's where you have to look a little bit closer. If I was to break down to you move for move an idea for idea that was done, I mean, the mirroring was almost exact. To the point, if you wanted to predict what's going to be next for our industry, you could just go and observe at what step are we in the mirroring of the WWE and what was the WWE's next step. It would then lead you logically to guess what our industry's Next step is going to be, in the WWE, you've got this show, right? They come to your town. You see a show. You go to, you got a ring set up. You got referees, you got valets, you got announcers, you got the athletes themselves, you got the managers. In your mind, there was probably a crew of grips that came in and set that arena. And when the stars get done performing, off they go to a limousine that gets to a jet to get them to the next town. That's probably within your mind. And the crew of grips runs in and they tear the cage down, they load the truck up and they meet the stars in the next town. That's probably how that goes. Those stars that you're speaking about, the wrestlers, the valets, the announcers, the referees, all of those human beings that make up the crew are the ones that set up the arena. The wrestlers who are the main event of this show, an event that you just came out to that was a huge attraction, will go in the back, they'll shower, they'll put on their street clothes, they will then come back with WD-40 and a crescent wrench, and they will take that ring apart. They will load it amazingly organized into boxes, as they will then do with the visual components, the cameras and whatnot. They will do that with the lights, they will do it with the sound and audio, they will put that into boxes, they will take those into the truck and they will load it themselves. Does that surprise you? And if you were to go back before there were the limousines and there were the private jets, you could see as you're going town to town where this is the crew, this is the labor. You set it up yourself. You're a professional wrestler, but tonight you don't have a match. You're the referee. When we get to another town, you hand that shirt to somebody else and you get to go in there and a different professional wrestler comes in and he's the referee. It is extremely well organized, but it is also known as paying your dues. And if you find a way around that, 
If you're good looking enough, if you're skilled enough, if you're connected enough that you're a second generation guy and you don't have to tell that, tear that cage down and you don't load those boxes and you don't help to put it on the truck, you're going to be viewed differently by the boys. And when the politics come into it, who's going to get the push and who gets to be at the end of the night and who gets to be champion today? If you didn't pay the same dues and make the same towns and tear down and set up just as many arenas and cages, it's going to be a bit of a problem. And like any organization, you're not looking for problems. You're looking to go smooth. You're looking to show guys the way this is done. Here's the right thing to do. Here's what leadership and hard work and dedication does. And you rise them up. There are exceptions over time, but those exceptions have not gone down very well. What I just described for you is not the path that the Ultimate Warrior had by example. What I just described to you is not the path that Bill Goldberg had by example. An Ultimate Warrior rest his soul, but he was not welcomed back at events. He wasn't sitting in the front row of a mania. He wasn't coming to the back and slapping hands with the boys. He was ostracized from the community. You don't see Bill Goldberg going to events and being one of the boys in the audience. You will see him brought in for very special events. Bill got a very special deal that any of us would have taken had we been able to get it. But there's still a way, and our locker rooms aren't as discussed as their locker rooms, but it works the same way. And if somebody can come in without paying their dues and all of a sudden have one of the main card slots, there is a demotivation that is sent through the locker rooms, which is something an organization would prefer to avoid. John Jones was the champion. He walked away. Now, there's no plans for John Jones. John cannot hurt anybody right now. The marketing team doesn't realize, oh my God, I just spent and worked overtime for eight months straight building a guy who's not going to come. That's not the case. The editing department doesn't realize I worked nights and weekends to build a guy who took it from me. The PR team wasn't going around doing the tours and the radio stations to have a guy put the brakes on. They did. That did happen, but it can't happen now. There's no momentum. There's no wind at the sails. Do we want to restart that? Do we want to put ourselves in a position where somebody who's already hurt us once can do it again? And moreover, what message do we send to the locker room? What message do we send to other champions if we acquiesced? Those are questions that are going to be asked. So John returns. John's ready to fight. John's great. He's awesome. People keep talking about that. I mean, as though that's a thing. Guys will want more money saying, I'm, I, I, I'm the champion of Abu Dhabi, by example. I've won 15 fights. I had nine finishes all in the first round. Like, they will come and they will try to read you resumes as though that's their worth. And they believe it. We'll have people write about it that want to come in and talk about pay structures because this is what the organization made. And therefore... Somebody else who's part of the system should be given X amount. Could you imagine? Could you imagine when those arguments come out about the UFC and fighter pay? That fighter pay is in relation to how much the organization has brought in or moreover has profited. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine how badly Elon Musk and the Jeff Bezos of the world and the Warren Buffett are sweating bullets thinking, oh dear Christ, don't let that be the way. The market sets price. 
There are economic factors at place that set price, and what the organization brought in has never been part of that. But those dialogues are out there, and right now, John's not in a spark that he could hurt anybody. I realize I'm not handing you the answers. I'm getting close, and if you're smart enough to read between it, you will see. There is a very possible chance that John never fights again. And John could dispute that and say, no, I'm ready to go. Well, are you licensed anywhere, John? Well, no, I haven't done that, but I'll get that after. Okay, but let me just stop you right there. If you aren't licensed, then you're not going to fight. Do you have an opponent? Do you have Right, we can start to ask some of these questions. Now, you can get around what happened. You can get around and start over from scratch and say, it's new me and I'm going to give you four fights. I'm going to give you four. I'm going to do them any way you want. After that four, I'm going to go back to fight. I'm going to go back to negotiation. You would have that right to do that based on your contract. As a matter of fact, it would even be expected of you. But if you have a four fight deal and you've got a history of wanting to come in after fight number two, turn the gun back on the organization, you've got a problem. Now, how do you get around that? Well, if Francis Ngannou can come to the table and your John Jones can be used as a bargaining chip to get what you really want, which is Francis back in the octagon, I don't know that that is the case. If it were, then there will be a seat at the table and everybody's going to have to deal with the headaches that come along with it. But if you don't get Francis back, what do you do with John? And I know every one of you's hands went up and you're already yelling at me and you're telling me it's Stipe Miocic. I understand that, but you've got to understand back you've never made a dollar in MMA. I don't say it to be a jerk to you. But you continue to think that you have the answers and you know the right answers, but you haven't made a dollar in MMA. So before you put John versus Stipe, what would be the problem with putting John against Stipe? Nothing. It's going to be big news. It's going to be a great fight. Be interesting contest. Could be for an interim championship. Could be for an undisputed championship. But what else is going to come from that? Because there are many promoters that play checkers, and they will go in all in for one night. You have other promoters that play chess, and every move has to set up another move. So if you do John Jones versus Stipe, what do you do next? You might have an answer. You bring Surreal gone in there. That's a very interesting matchup. That's true, but then you're armed with the fact that Surreal was given a world title fight with the greatest storyline in history, and he did nothing. But let's just say we're going to do it that way. We're going to go Stipe and Jones, and then we're going to draw into Surreal. That's actually going to be a pretty good round robin. That's going to be a pretty interesting match, and that's going to take us until April. What do you do then? And there's where the problem comes. There's five and six and seven very compelling matches for John Jones at light heavyweight now. Now that he left and that division got to reform itself, got to bring up new and rising stars. There's a number of things you could do, but apparently he's not looking to go back to 205. He's at heavyweight. Where are you going to put him? Who are you going to put him with? And why would you be in a hurry to do that if you've only got two or three moves to do anyway? There's other people that are in this same position who were world champion who walked away. They were empowered and they were put in a position. They were trusted with that position. They were trusted to lead. They were trusted to promote. They were trusted to marquee. They were trusted to bring in attention to that division, which is what the championship opportunity was given. If we were to go back to the WWE, if there was ever a champion put in that position who refused to come out and refused to draw and refused to bring people and refused to bring attention to the rest of the boys that weren't in that position, they would take the belt off him 
immediately. And if he gets out his crescent wrench and his WD-40 and he can prove his way and he can pack up enough trucks and he can show that he's learned from his mistakes, he may be given that opportunity again. But he will grab those wrenches. He will be there on team. He will show that he's a team player. He will do those things or he will not be given that opportunity again. And when it comes to, is John going to come back? Will John ever fight in the organization again? I would tend to lean towards yes. Are they going to be in a hurry for it? That obviously is a no. And if things don't get worked out with Francis, right, the whole talk of Jones versus Stipe, we're not even doing that anymore. We're too close to the finish line with Francis. If things get worked out with Francis, we can start to see where things are going to change for Jones. If things don't get worked out with Francis and you think that you know the answer of what's next for John Jones, you didn't understand anything that you just listened to. All right, guys, that's it for today's episode. Thank you for listening. And leaving us five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts like this one from H, who says, Fire Conversations. Well, thank you, H, and thanks to all of you for listening. Guys, we're going to be back here on Tuesday for an official countdown to UFC 280. Until then, I'm Chael Sonnen, and you are welcome.